0: What's up, my friends, and welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about how to teach game design. What does it look like to raise up the next generation of designers? Whether they're eight years old or 80, how do we go about, what's the process of creating more designers? And honestly, that's been one of my main goals, main missions, ever since the Board Game Design Lab got started, is how do we bring more people into this amazing hobby to create great games that people love? And in this episode, I'm talking to Jay Cormier, who is a game design teacher. He's one of the most prolific game designers that I've ever met. He's got tons and tons and tons of amazing games on the market, award-winning games, games that have done really well in the marketplace, uh, on crowdfunding campaigns and different things like that. And we're chatting about his experience teaching game design. He has taught at the collegiate level for over a decade, I believe, and you know, has taught all sorts of different angles and avenues and, and taught lots of students over the years about Game design. So, we talk through the structure of his class and the different things that he focuses on, the different takeaways that someone who's just wanting to to teach their son or daughter or nephew or niece or family friend or whatever, the different takeaways that you can uh, have from his class and how to structure your own version of it. And we also get into this really cool game design activity project he's been working on for a while. It's on Kickstarter right now and it's all about learning game design. It's a, a product young people or for not quite as young. It's really a product for gamers, maybe not even necessarily interested in game design, but just a way to kind of open up their eyes, but also for people that want to dive into or teach game design. It gives you just this wonderful structured way to go through a book that step-by-step teaches you the process of bringing a game to life. We also get into the benefits of teaching and learning game design and a whole lot more. In other news, this episode is sponsored by Launch Tabletop. Are you thinking of making prototypes, demo copies, or short print runs of your game? Well, Launch Tabletop can help. Their print-on-demand service, Launch Lab, helps you make retail-quality board games at all scales, even just one single copy. Go to launchtabletop.com to find out more, and if you use promo code BGDL20, you'll receive 20% off your first order. So if you want to launch your next game project to the stratosphere with retail quality and no minimums, check out Launch Tabletop today. In other news, this episode is sponsored by Crowdfunding Nerds, also known as Next Level Web. This group of crowdfunding specialists has worked on over 100 projects and helped raise nearly $15 million. But the truly amazing part is that most of those campaigns were from first-time creators. They charge flat fees and offer simple monthly pay-as-you-go plans. And their record for funding projects on day one is over 90%. I've personally been working with them for years, and they have been instrumental in helping me raise hundreds of thousands of dollars for my own campaigns. Andrew and his team are honest, hardworking, and reliable, and they have been absolutely phenomenal to work with. So if your game is awesome, but your email list is pitiful, visit crowdfundingnerds.com and fill out a contact form today. And now, please help me welcome Jay Cormier. So Jay, since you were on the show last, which it's been a little little while, you've been super busy, and you've got some really cool things that you have brought into the marketplace. Some amazing games that have gotten amazing reviews. You've run pretty massive crowdfunding campaigns with Mind Management. Like, I just want, I just want you to know personally, I am so excited for you. Like, I am so, I'm so glad to like been able to watch this journey you've been on of bringing these games to life, of having this very. Unique, interesting idea of like saying, hey, we're going to design games around comics, working with independent comic book artists and, and creators and turn their comic ideas into board games and, you know, Mind Management, Harrow County. You've got a new one, uh, Manifest Destiny, that's coming out, which I've read that one. I'm, I'm super excited to check that out and see how you've implemented because like, I've read through the comic. Like, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I hope you do Black Badge at some point in the future. That's another one I really enjoyed. That's a good one. Always
1: you know, good. if I could just kind
0: of push you in that direction. But, At the same time, you've also got this cool fail faster thing going on. It's all about game design and helping designers create games that people love, which is all, you know, exactly the kind of thing I I love. And now you've got this really cool product, which is all about how to design games and like guiding people, especially younger people, through the process of game design. And it's not just a a book with a bunch of text. And it's not just, you know, here's some graphics. It's like an actual game to learn how to design games called Design Your Destiny. And I'm super excited to hear more about that. And so this this conversation is all about how to teach game design. Like, what does that look like? And so I just wanted to give people reference for who you are. Like, you know what you're doing. You're not just some random guy off the street, you know, that kind of was like, hey, I got an idea. Like, you've been doing this a long time. You've also been teaching for a long time. So tell me more about that. Let's start there. Tell me about the kind of professional teaching of game design. I think at the college level, you've been doing. Tell me about that, and then we'll dive into like actually how to do it.
1: Yeah, I've uh, I have ten or maybe closer to fifteen years of experience in uh, uh, training um, in a in a corporate setting. So I've been uh, facilitating and uh, designing training programs for fifteen years for an international company. And then that's aside from all this, and then teaching. Uh, at the Vancouver Film School, they have a video game design program. And one of the courses they have to take is board game design where they learn about game theory and just mechanics of games and all this kind of stuff. And I've been teaching that for about 10 years at the Vancouver Film School. And then I even taught for two years at Langara. Um, And they both had different uh, structures and and, uh, amount of time dedicated to it. So the via Vancouver Film School one is a seven-week program with three hours of class uh, every week. Plus they do three hours of uh, practical, which is playing games and learning about games so that we have context for talking about all the things that we talk about.
0: First of all, where was this when I was in school? Right? Like, this is... These kids these days, they have no idea how good they got it. But tell me, let me ask you this. So I've talked to quite a few video game creators, people from the video game side of things, and pretty much all of them have said understanding board game design has greatly helped them create video games. Why is that? What is it about the physical space that helps them in the digital space?
1: Yeah, I'm, and I'm so thankful that VFS agrees with that concept and that they they also believe that uh, understanding... Uh, the, the core concepts of what makes games work and what makes them fun is true, whether in board game or in video games. Just even understanding, yeah, I know you might not be making a video game that has worker placement or that has deck building. You might, but you, the concepts of, of player agency and giving players decisions and where uh, um, feedback loops fit in or the, the role uncertainty plays in various roles. All this stuff adds to your your tool belt as a designer, whether you're a board game or video game designer.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Although with deck building, honestly, I think I prefer the digital version that I don't have to shuffle and like figure all the cards. <laughs> like it's just click a button. Oh, okay, we're playing. So, it's been cool to see how many mechanisms have crossed over into the digital space. You know, games like Gloomhaven are now digital and they're really fun cuz like my brain doesn't have to keep track of all the numbers and stats and data on the back. You'll have to set it all up and tear it all down. Yeah, that's exactly exactly. And so, I see a lot of interest in crossover and then I'm also seeing video games inspire board games. And I'm seeing designers kind of go, ooh, that's a cool idea. Let's turn that into a physical mechanism in some way and implement it.
1: When I say we, I mean Sen. Sen and I have designed a lot of games together. Uh, we were asked to make a, a board game off of uh, My Singing Monsters. And I was just at PAC West, PAX West on the weekend, last weekend, and they, uh, they had the physical board games there, which I hadn't seen yet. So that was very exciting. Uh, that's an app if you haven't seen that, uh, My Singing Monsters, a video game app.
0: Yeah, so it's cool to see kind of the blurring of the lines between the digital and the physical. And then also you have companies like Lucky Duck and others that are like literally coming out with board games that are 70% video games or 70% apps, you know? And then it's this interesting time to be a designer. And I know there's also a lot of pushback. People are like, don't you bring that app stuff into my table? Cool. The great thing is the hobby is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. More people are coming in. There's more views and ideas and, and there's more players. And part of that also means there's more potential game designers. And so let's talk about what does it look like to teach game design? Whether it's to your your child, like maybe you're a parent and you've got some kids that are kind of interested, especially if they're seeing you, you know, do your little arts and crafts projects. They're watching you cut out cards and write down ideas and roll dice. And you're like, oh, I want to try that because that's definitely been my experience. Or if you've just got, you know, uh, people in your family, your you know nieces, nephews, whatever, or maybe you're a teacher. I used to teach some game design stuff with, Uh, my English class, I would have people come in. We just chat, chat about stuff and make little, you know, prototypes that never went anywhere, but it was just fun. It was a fun process. Um, So let's, let's talk about that. Tell me kind of the overall structure of your class, which this is, you know, for 20 ish year olds. So it's going to be a little bit different if you're talking about an eight year old or something like that, but tell me just kind of the overall structure of your class. And then we'll dive into like the more specifics of each lesson or week or whatever.
1: Uh, Yeah. For the 20 year old, something obviously very different than teaching like Year olds or whatever. So for the twenty plus year olds, uh, uh, post secondary uh, students, you know, they they're a lot of the time, and it's it's changing. But I've been doing this for ten years, so it's definitely changing. But for a lot of times, when I the very first thing I always ask them is, "Tell me your favorite board game," and we and introduce yourself. So that's how I get to know everybody, and I get to know the kind of kind of uh, level of experience and knowledge they have in this industry. And while some people will say things like Catan or uh, Gloomhaven or what have you. Um, most of them are saying things like Clue and Monopoly and uh, the games they played as kids. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's where you grew up with. That's where you have all your memories of playing with your family, and that's wonderful. Um, but the the games coming out now are offering a, a whole bunch of different types of experiences, and they're just not aware of it. And so if, the first thing I do is is they have a, usually have a practical session first, and they play games first, and they play we'll play Sushi Go. And we'll play resistance and everybody plays it. And we have, so we have multiple copies of it and they all play. So they understand something as simple as card drafting, which most of them have an experience where they might have, if they play magic and a lot of, a lot of them have played magic or Pokemon stuff, but not as part of a game. They play that as part of drafting your cards for your deck. So that really turns a lot of light bulbs of like, what is this? This is like, and it's such an easy game to understand. And then resistance, even though there's a hurdle for understanding how to play the game for, for newbies of like, what am I doing? Why am I, should I do this? You know, we play that two or three times so that they, by the time they play the third time, they're like, I get it now. And uh, they all love it. It's almost invariably a hundred percent people love resistance just because of how it makes you think different. And, uh, uh, it, a lot of students I find tr- also want to make a social deduction game in there for the project that they have for us, which is super hard to make. Like it's, it's hard to find something new in that area to make. So I always kind of say you can, but it's that's going to be a challenge to do something that's not resistance, you know, uh, to or whatever. <laughs> so we start with, uh, and then when we skip class, we just start with basic stuff. Like I go through things like game classification and I don't even, I even start this by saying, uh, it, it, it doesn't matter. Like there's things called, you know, uh, we used to call it a uh, Euro game and Ameritrash and we try to avoid Ameritrash. It sounds, it sounds like it's a negative thing or something and it's not, it's just a different So we call it, uh, I think we still call them Euro games and, and conflict based games because that's generally what
0: the, so uh, the American style games are conflict based. That's, um, that's pretty accurate, honestly, sadly. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and then party games and social, all these kind of, and, and we say that what's great now is that so many of these games are bleeding into two or three of categories that it's hard to classify. And that's great. So it's because some people would ask, well, how, what is this classified? It was this classified. I'm like, it doesn't matter. It's, but it's still a good understand uh, to, to where we came from as far as wh- where the games are. And where you can push your boundaries and where you can explore. So we go through that. We go through mechanics and themes and we go, then we start going through all the different mm, tools that you need as a designer. And uh, it's all leading up to a project where they have to design a final board game by the end of the seven weeks. So they only have seven weeks to design. So first assignment is like brainstorm 10 board game ideas. Each of them has to have a mechanic and a theme. And so we've taught that in first class. So they, they have to have 10 different ideas. And then I pick which one I want them to make. So out of that 10, they don't have choice that I pick which one they, they make, because I always want to pick one that is something I've never seen before. I'm like, well, this looks fun, and like, that looks unique and different, and that's great, or, and it's also achievable. Sometimes the scope creep gets so big that they want these grandiose ideas. I'm like, yeah, that's going to be only seven weeks, but you don't have enough time. And then their second assignment is they have to try to create a, a paper document outlining what they think their game is going to be like with some criteria. And invariably, it always isn't exactly like that by the end, of course. Um, and then we go through different ways to prototype and play test as we're learning different tools like feedback loops and uh, uncertainty and the role that plays. And um, then, yeah, then by the end, and and then we spend more time actually, uh, instead of playing new games, we start play testing their games throughout, through their practical sessions. And then they have a final presentation at the end.
0: Very cool. And people pay you to do this? <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> That's awesome, dude. All right. So let's dive into some of these, these things. I was writing some notes down. I've got some ideas for, for something. Cause one thing you mentioned was a lot of times new designers, they have a tendency to make kind of the same game that they've already played or that they already like, but it's like a slightly different version, you know? And so it ends up becoming, it's Catan, but with combat or something like that. Right. But I find myself encouraging that, you know, saying, Hey, this isn't going to be a product because you know, copyright violations but um do you ever find yourself encouraging people to come up with like a 2.0 or an expansion or something like that to a game that they already enjoy and love
1: i guess not for this class because ultimately they're going to be creating video games and that they wouldn't want that in the video game as a final product like a you know a meat boy 2 or something you know they would want something unique coming from this school so i i kind of align with that ideology and like let's come up with something original uh but that is a good exercise for sure i don't disagree with you the, the
0: yeah. For, okay. So if, if you're talking to a 10 year old, then it's again, that's very different. So know your context, know who you're talking to and know kind of what the ultimate vision is. And I love that you have that vision going in of, hey, this is a stepping stone to a much bigger thing that you're working on with this overall program. That's cool. And, and I can I can see that actually working really well, too, with like my kids. It's like, hey, um, this is what we're going to do here and we're going to do these concepts. But here's like the overall vision of what we're trying to get to. You know, and will we get there? I don't know. Will you become a, a published designer, you know, between now and by the time you're 18? I don't know. But but at least like have some milestones along the way. And even if your kid kind of gets bored of it, like that's OK, too. But like have that vision.
1: That's where I think with when, once you deal with kids, I think it has to be m- uh, much more guided and hand holding, and much more like here. Like that's what we did with our uh the project. We'll talk in a minute about the design. Jesse, like here's a game and let's. How can we tweak a little bit of it? How can we, whether it's an existing game or, uh, and just what happens and get them with comfortable with the idea of just changing a rule and play testing one rule change. How does that, how does that change things? And uh, it's fascinating to watch as they play and realize, and they, they like, that's, that's not fun or that's not fair. This person has got way, okay, well, let's fix that. And so it just keeps becoming this process of, okay, well, let's fix that. Like and uh, it becomes very engaging uh, with kids if they get a, a very specific goal of like, let's make this fair.
0: Yeah, it's, Yeah, it's a really good point. Now I'm excited to chat about your the product that you've come up with. because I think it's a, like a wonderful way to do that. And just again, it gives it gives a box for the game design to live in, which, you know, I've met so many adults that if you just say, hey, do whatever you want, it paralyzes them. They're, they're overwhelmed. They're like, can I get any structure? <laughs> and so, yeah, especially with kids. Another thing you mentioned was scope creep. I don't know that I've ever chatted with a new designer that wanted to make a nine card game or an 18. Like all of them want to make Twilight Imperium 5th edition or something like that. Right. They always want to come up with this massive thing. Why do you think that is? And then what, what is your advice to your students on how to like rein in the scope?
1: Yeah, I, I think it is because thematically it's just so rich and they want to feel like oh i have all this control and there's so many things and then there's these planets and then you have to, you can go to different ones and then there's this pirates to come and like it feels thematically exciting to have this big you know thing and then say well what if we just made it about you and you're at a dog pound and you have you know to adopt some dogs and which ones do you adopt and it's like well that's doesn't seem like there's any decisions um uh, and, and so what I do is I, I pretty much have uh, two rules that, that pretty much rein them in. The game must be playable in an hour, like rules aside, must be played within an hour. And uh, you can't have more than 10 components in your game. And that component meaning um, a type of thing, like a deck of cards is one component. But if you have three decks of cards, that's three components. And so that sometimes they kind of complain, can we have three more? And I'm like, no, this is for your benefit. Like brainstorm your way, you know, these constraints will give you creativity and, and make you solve it. And you will be thanking me because otherwise it's just, I didn't do this early on. My first couple of years when I was teaching, they could do whatever they wanted. And we got crazy scope creep products where they couldn't finish them and they were unfinished. And it was like, okay, we got to do something with this. This isn't good. And so that's what came up with that.
0: And talk about a direct parallel to the video game space. I mean, how many video games are just sitting like n- not for sale yet because the designers, the creators, like it just got too out of hand. It got too big. And um, yeah, so it's, it's great for them to learn that in paper versus, you know, how, how long, you know, it takes to code and all that kind of thing. And then no
1: matter what, even within that constraints, they all, when I was asking about the end, I'm like, what did you, what's, what do you take away from this? What did you learn? What's your favorite? And they're all like, oh, scope creep. Like they still learn that even within the constraints of the, of that, there still is scope creep no matter what. As much as as simple as you think a game is, you're like, well, now we've got to fix that. And usually, when you're you just new at stuff, fixing something means adding something.
0: I was just about to say that. It seems like new designers, their answer to almost every problem is add more, versus experienced designers, their answer to almost everything is cut cut more. Like cut cut as much as you can. Like <laughs> guess edit this thing thing down. And I guess that's just something you pick up over time, you know, and you learn to be more efficient and that kind of thing. Uh, so. Then okay, then there's planning. Tell me about tell me about the planning. Are, are they coming Are they coming up with a document and they kind of write everything out and they've got bullet points and a mission statement, and all kind of thing. Like, what does that planning look like?
1: Yeah, uh, it's like a, a game design document we call it. And uh, you know, they tell us the mechanic and the theme. I say uh, list all of the decisions that you think a player will be making in the game. And I just say think of your think of a, a structure of a turn and what kind of I don't want a rule book. I just but what are the different decisions they have? Oh. Well, which unit to place, where to place it, uh, how much uh, to spend on this, how many cards, like, list all the decisions you have. Um, And then because we had learned uh, uncertainty earlier in the day, uh, uh, we say, how does uncertainty play a role in your game? Where is the uncertainty in your game? And uh, we had learned earlier that uncertainty, you need a certain amount of uncertainty in the game. There has to be uncertainty, otherwise it's 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 exact and you know everything it's too uh and i don't mean like chess you even chess has uncertainty because you have the your opponent's uncertainty of what they're going to do and so everything needs uncertainty um and so where is it in your game and they have to explain that and uh it's yeah it's only like two pages long so it's not a huge thing and it feels like there's something else that's missing from there uh but but that's that's the general kind of pitch of it and it's funny i always tell them to look at it afterwards once they finish your game and see how much that's that's changed which is totally great and fine
0: yeah absolutely it's but at least they have an idea of where they're going right if you yeah, don't have some sort of map they got to start there. yeah by um uh
1: it's it's pretty fast paced because uh, by uh, so week one they have the assignment and then week two they've handed it in and then so i can't assign their next assignment till week three And then week uh, um, and then so on week two, I think we do a rules assignment where they do a rule book for some very, very, very simple game. Um, And then uh, week four, uh, I can't remember doing but week five, their alpha is like they have to bring an alpha on week four, on week five. And so it's it's pretty fast paced from uh, um, and they don't have tons of time in class to do uh, make their alpha. So they have to do that in uh, projects uh, outside of class.
0: Yeah. So this is a very sped up. Process, but I like that though, Uh, to your, to your whole you know, company fail faster, you know, like get this thing to the table, get it out there and let's, let's tweak it. Let's play test it and, and figure it out. And I like that you're really focusing on that in uncertainty. Cause I think that's something that gets missed a lot of times is we, we don't talk about it enough. And I had a great conversation with James earnest recently, and he talked about how important surprise is in a game, right? And as a designer, you're creating these surprise moments that are also, they're not like out of nowhere. It's not like, Oh, I didn't know that was possible. And now I lose the game. Like, no, that's not fun. But these, th- these, these, you know the box of here are the possibilities, or here are the things that are certain. Here are the things that are uncertain, and then the surprise that can come out of that. So I love that you're focusing on that. Is that like a new concept for a lot of these kids? Like something for them to, that they hadn't really thought about?
1: It is. Well, when you break it down, because I break it down into the four buckets, you have uncertainty that comes from randomness, and that, and then we even talk about we talk about we call it input or output randomness of where the where the randomness comes in relation to the decision you make. So input randomness, uh, happens when you, uh, get the randomness first, the chaos, the randomness first, and then you make a decision that's input randomness. Whereas if the, uh, decision happens first, like I'm going to attack Australia, then you have uh, a rolling of dice of randomness and chaos, and you see what happens, you see if that happens or not. And they both have value, but there's a difference in understanding that and, you know, 99% of uh, kids that are in this class, are, are, are output randomness is pretty much all they know about. And input randomness is, even though they play games with input, any anytime you have a card, even Uno, where you get a card and you draw it, and now you have a decision which one to play. Um, it doesn't, Uno doesn't exactly work that. Way. Any card game where you draw and you get to choose a game, uh, a card to play, that's it. Then we, so that's the first way of input. We have uncertainty of hidden information, so anything that's hidden, even from a deck of cards or cards that are in my hand that I see and you don't see, or, or games like Clue, where there's hidden information from all players. So there's all different types of levels of hidden information. That's uncertainty. Um, and obviously uncertainty from opponents. So any game, you don't know what they're going to do, which should be hopefully most games. And uncertainty in your skill or performance, which is mostly going to be uh, in dexterity-based games, um, where uh, uh, you, know, you have a certain amount of skill, like um, yeah, I know I want to hit the bullseye, but I can't hit the bullseye. <laughs> so my uncertainty is in my own skill and performance.
0: Gotcha. No, I love that. That's something I'm, I'm, I'm taking notes right now. It's like with my daughters who, you know, every now and then it, it kind of, it comes and goes, right. They'll, they'll see me working on something they'll get real excited. And sometimes they see me working on something and they're like, no, nah, no, thanks. And so, you know, as normal kids are. And so I'm, I'm, I'm loving this. this. These are some things I can at least get their, their wheels turning, right. To be, just be thinking, about right just to have that information whether you end up using it or not it's, it's still super super helpful all right so then let's let's talk about prototyping with your class what does that look like are you i mean are most kids making card-based games and dice and it, so they're not really coming up with these like big grandiose prototype they don't like, they don't need that or like what does it look like
1: like during the uh pandemic years we all had to go online and we were all doing t- tabletop simulator uh, mm-hmm. stuff so that was that was for two years we had to do that but in in the class um yeah, it's totally a mix. Some are doing some are doing just card games, but most have a board. Um and some are gigantic and some yeah, I mean it's all over the map as far as I mean with ten components, you know, it limits how big uh with regards to, you know, number of things, but some some are are pretty awesome in this, as far as what they're you know, they can come up with in this uh, seven weeks. I'm very, usually very impressed even if the games don't end up being awesome. But the idea, like, even none of, none of my games are awesome in seven weeks. You know what I mean? Like, you got to judge it based on where it is in the timeline of like, yeah, this is really cool. Here's what I would do if you're going to proceed this further. Here's what I would do to, you know, improve it, blah, blah, blah. But great job.
0: Yeah, that's such a great point. And especially, like, you've got, I'm pretty sure every design or every game behind you in the video here, you've designed. Is that right? Yeah,
1: that's correct, yeah. And
0: it's it's like 50 them. So what's so cool about you teaching this class is you that you can say, hey, uh, your game's not going to be good in seven weeks. And you let people know, like you establish the kind of reality of things. Like the the odds of you making a amazing game in less than six months is probably not going to happen.
1: It's funny though that I tried that one class to say that and I found that they didn't try as hard. So I don't say that anymore. So it's a weird thing. It's a weird, I don't know, psychology thing or something like that. They're like, oh, it's not going to be great anyway. So I don't, you know what I mean? Like it was a weird, so I don't tell them that anymore, even though that's true. I, I'm, yeah. Uh, I might tell them that on the very last class.
0: Like uh, at the end. Like probably yeah. handed in,
1: yeah.
0: Okay, that does make sense. Oh, man, what an interesting little case study on human psychology, right? Uh, okay, do you have any like specific prototyping uh, tips or tricks or advice or anything that you give them that you might share here that would help people teaching? I
1: mean, we go through um, the Alpha prototyping kit, which is pretty much just paper, um, uh, a uh, some sort of cutter to cut things. Uh, no, we don't even say that. I even say cue cards, uh, or paper, whatever, and, and cubes and markers. That's all you need to make an alpha. Uh, cause with cubes, you can make dice. If you had to, if you don't even have dice, you can make cubes, you know, and that's it. And once we get to the beta, then we're getting into, you know, you, you need a printer and computer so you can make it look, you know, presentable. It doesn't have to look great. We talk, talk about that all the time about, I know some of the people in this class are uh, in here because they want to get into, the, the artistic side of video games, not necessarily the programming side. That's, the, that's what they want. And so I said, if that's what you're doing and, and you have fun doing it, you can spend time making this look great, but it's not worth very much on your final... Uh, so, you know, you're not, I'm not, I'm not encouraging you to spend a lot of time on the, the looks of it, but we talk about graphic design and in the Langara course, I had more time than seven weeks. We had 15 weeks. So we got to talk about user experience, user interface, and a little bit more about, uh, layouts and stuff like that. So that was, uh, um, that, that I get to spend more time when I was teaching that. Um, and then, uh. Stuff like matboard, board, I, I like using mat board personally for anything that's a tile. If I'm making a tile-based game, I don't like using like cereal boxes for tiles, you know, sticking stuff on because they don't butt up against each other. Whereas if you use mat board, and I fortunately have this like a, I think it's called Urban Source. It's like a junk store uh, nearby. And they'll always have all these, the, you know, mat board where they cut out for, for frames, for picture frames. The insides mm-hmm. of that usually are garbage. Because they just wanted the frame part, right? So the insides I can usually buy for seventy cents for this big piece of map board that can usually do a whole bunch of tokens for me. So, and then I print on full page labels. That's what I do. They don't have they have access to a color printer, but not necessarily labels and stuff like that. So uh, they might have to just stick it with a glue stick or whatever.
0: Yeah, but I love the fact that you're saying, hey, at, at first, no cards, a couple cubes, a marker, like that's all you need to get started. Because I think especially for older gamers. Like I haven't found this with kids. Kids are like, they'll just take whatever. They'll take some broken crayons and some lint out of their, their junk drawer, or whatever, and they're making a game. But with older gamers you're trying to teach, a lot of times they want their prototype to look like a finished product. And then they spend so much time and effort and energy on something that then doesn't even end up making it to the, to the next stage of, of playtesting, right? And so I think that's something to, again, just understand your audience. Because there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. Like I've talked to a lot of designers. They, like they, love, yeah, they love that arts and craft process. That's, That's part of their hobby. Oh, good. Feel free. But if you're trying to bring a product to market in a relatively shorter amount of time, it's just something to think about. That's a way you can create some efficiency in your process. And, and I love the mat board thing. I hadn't thought about that. Like Hobby Lobby and Michael's or some stores in the States. That I'm pretty sure sell that kind of stuff for pretty cheap because they, they do the custom framing as well. So I bet I bet they have just the junk that they can't sell yes. normally and just go That's in there right. and say, hey, can I can Somebody I get it for free? <laughs> in
1: I, I, the past, I did. I, I actually would go to uh, framing stores and they would just give me their innards.
0: Yeah, because, I mean, they just you know, throw it away or recycle it anyway. You're saving them a step. They don't have to take it to the <laughs> dumpster. You're, you're going to take it to your house. So that makes a lot of sense. And then you just got to uh,
1: buy full-page full labels. It's been Awesome for me. Full brief label. I use all the time for any kind of player board or anything like that. Actually, player boards. Everything now. Even my bo- Even my boards. Like a board game. If I'm making a board, I just print it on card stock. It's fine for playtesting because it lays flat. As long as things lay flat and don't curl. That's the one thing I tell them when they hand it in. Like, don't roll up your boards because like, we can't play when it's all rolled up. We can't unroll it. It just stays curled. Uh, simple things like that. But I have to. I have to give marks now, which is silly that. Everything has to come in little baggies or something like that because
0: a few times people hand in and
1: all their components are just loose in the box. I'm like, this, what is this? So now I have to give marks just so that they hand it in tidy.
0: Oh, man, that's funny. Yeah, I guess you don't have enough time to go into how to make a proper insert for your game. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> gotcha. All right. So the prototyping, tell me about playtesting. How much time is spent in class? Like, Because I feel like playtesting in the in, in general, maybe the most important aspect of game design, like so much of designing is the playtesting. But how much time are you able to devote to it in your class? And like tell me some of the things that you're you're really diving into.
1: Not a ton, unfortunately, because, so yes and no. So in the Langera class, we had more time. And we'd actually uh, I would show them a game that I designed, and then I and I would fancy it up saying this is part of a game that I'm actually trying to pitch to publishers, and it's not, it's just some cheesy stupid game. And I get them to all play it. And um, then I ask them for some feedback after playing it. And I'm walking around and I'm making notes about, about observing things, about what they're saying about certain things. And I bring that up. I'm like, I notice a few of you are frustrated because you couldn't remember the end goal or you couldn't do this and blah, blah, blah. And I bring it up. Why is that? And I ask this and I'm like, and so what did you guys think of the game? What, what are some things you like? And I'll go through it exactly. I'll, I'll model what a great feedback session looks like and asking all the right questions and follow up and all this kind of stuff and accepting all of the answers. Great. Oh, that's interesting. Fantastic. And then um, we'll then um, uh, play test. Uh, I can't remember how I did it because it was this was a while ago now when I did it with the other college. But I think I don't think they had their own game, but it was Yeah, it was their own game, but it was like a, a twist on the game war. They had to come up with their own version of war and add something to it. So just like add a decision to it or something like that. And that, that was what they had to write the rule book on, was that. So so they either had a game. So then they had to play test that game with some people and get feedback on it as if this was gonna be a published game. And they had to go through the steps we went through and we had to kind of identify it. And so they got practice in my seven week class. we don't have time for any of that. So we go through, you know, I just have to list it. Like, here's, here's, you know, what what you have to do when you're, when you're playtesting, take all the, all the steps about taking notes and all about how much, how important it is to accept all feedback. Even if you're not going to implement all the feedback, you have to accept it all because my goodness, playtesters are gold. They are absolute gold. And they're spending their time. Why? To help you, to help you. They're not there for them. They're there for you. And so whatever they say is to help you, no matter how they say it, they might not have the right way of saying it. And I know I have a play tester that I play test all the time with and he's ESL. And so how he says sometimes something sometimes feels like it could hurt because the way he's saying it, but it's just, it doesn't matter. It's great feedback once she's try to understand. Um, and so we talk about trying to get to the root of the solution. If they're trying to offer a solution, maybe ask what the root of the problem is. What are they trying to solve? And I give some anecdotes about that, about how uh, I, I've experienced that in my life, and because sometimes their solution might be weird. Um, but the, if you understand what they're trying to try solve, you're like, oh, you want more attacking in this merchant trading game? Uh, why is that? Well, I just didn't feel like I was interacting with my with anybody. I'm like, okay, well, that we can fix. We can fi- fix interaction with between players. I can add. What if we did this to interact with players? Yeah, that that's something. He just went to attacking because that's, you know, his knowledge base and experiences games that have attacking in it, uh, which I find in this age group, adding attacking is uh, often feedback that you get from, from this age group. How
0: can this be more like Fortnite or League <laughs> of Legends? <laughs> yeah. To your point uh, about the uh, the negative, like the harsh feedback, one of the things I tell people all the time is if you receive, if someone says something, you're like, ah, like, uh, that kind of hurts just assume English is their second language. And I love the fact that your playtester English is their second language. And so it just kind of works out because I, I know when I was speaking Spanish down in Honduras, I only knew how to say things one way. There was no nuance. I didn't know synonyms to words. I knew one word to say about whatever it was. And so I'm sure I offended people un- without meaning to all the time, but you know, it is what it is. So that, that's super helpful. Uh, well, cool, man. All right. So do you also get into the productization of a game and like what it looks like to actually create a product and not just a game. Do you get to dive into that?
1: Not, no, because uh, uh, in the Laguerre one, we do a little, we did a little bit, but in this one we don't because it's not really um, the, the, the the purpose of this entire program. They're not going to be making a board game and trying to sell it and pitch it, all that kind of stuff. So um, with my online game design program, I am going to be getting into that uh, as, a, as a course eventually when I, when I have time to uh, create that program.
0: Yeah, and that, that makes sense why you wouldn't want it's not in the scope of the of the class that, that makes sense um but it is something i found with my own kids that i do talk to them about because i one thing i really want them to to have a knowledge of that i didn't was anything to do with business anything to do with making products or marketing because or, like I, I came out of high school and really out of college with no clue about this stuff, mainly because the people like my parents, they didn't know anything. They were factory workers. <laughs> like, They knew how to get up early and work hard and come home tired. Like that's what they did. Right. But when it came to like entrepreneurship or accounting or marketing or any of the business stuff, they didn't have any idea. And so I had to learn it all on the fly, you know, working with other people, finding mentors, watching YouTube videos, reading books. And so one thing I've really tried to do with my own kids is, is to stop and say, let me, let me not just tell you what I'm doing. Let me tell you why. Let me tell you why the box is this way. Let me tell you why the art style is this way. Let's talk about why the insert is like this to make the, the uh, user experience, the customer experience better. And it's been a lot of fun. And hopefully they'll, they'll remember some of it as they go. But I guess the deeper thing is I'm just wanting them to just to be intentional, to think, oh, there's more to this than just creating a thing. Like, yeah, if this is going to be a product, there's a million other things to think about. And they're just as fun. It's just as many cool problems to solve as as figuring out the mechanisms, but it's a whole nother angle. But also to get them to think, I could I could be my own boss. I could start my own business and have that confidence. Because I didn't have that until I was probably in my mid-20s. And you know, if I can get them as teenagers to already be thinking entrepreneurially, already be thinking, you know, how do I do my own thing, set my own hours, or do it and go, I don't like this. I like working for other people. I like a, a steady paycheck every two weeks. That's fine, too. But at least to have that information yeah. has been and how, a lot how of How old are fun your
1: years. kids for context?
0: Yeah, so my oldest is one of them just had a birthday. I'm so bad with, with ages. One of them just turned 12. That's it. The other one's 14. And then I've got two young ones that are four and two. So I've got this like big spread. Basically, I've got two kids that I'm doing my best with. And then um, it's like playtesting. And then like when the other two get that old, I'm like, okay, well, this is how we screwed up last time. Let's do this better this time. But um, anyway, and so, yeah, they're getting into that teenage years. And they're, you know, one, both of them are very creative. One of them is more math. One of them is more art. And so it's this interesting, they're very, and you know this, you have kids. like It's amazing how children with the same DNA as as their you know parents are totally different you know, are just wildly different children. And so it's been fun to kind of approach game design and teaching these things from different angles where one of them is much more, what are the numbers? What's, what's the math? What's the mechanism? And the other one is like, let's make pretty pictures and let's, that would be a
1: great uh, tag team to make a game. That's the two sides right there. Yeah, exactly.
0: Exactly. And so, and one of them is very much more uh, business oriented. She understands, she can understand those concepts. And the other one, is not <laughs> it's just not it's not her her wheelhouse and so yeah hopefully they'll they'll be able to you know at the very least be able to call each other up and say hey i'm dealing with this and it's not my expertise but i know your brain works in this different way and to just have that you know because i'm an old child my brother uh, unfortunately passed away and so like i, I didn't ever i don't have anybody uh as far as like that direct sibling uh, relationship and so doing everything i can to kind of build it up and that's another good thing about game design I can I can have these moments with both of them, where they're both seeing things from different angles, but we're all we're all speaking the same language, and we're all working on something. And it's and it's a family thing. Like it kind of brings you together um, to create something meaningful and something also like that is is real. So often in parenting, it feels like what's the fruit of this labor? Because you can't see it. You know, you might see it ten years from now. You might never see it. You might pass away before your kids like really come into the fruition of everything you've done. But when you're creating something together. You go through this process. It's like building a house. There was nothing. There was a piece of land. And then however many months later, there is a thing people can live in. Well, the game is the same thing. We had an empty table. And then we throw some note cards on it and some dice and whatever. And we put some art and some files we found online whatever. And at the end of this thing, we have a, a, a tangible thing we can play and have fun with and work on. So I found that to be really cool, too. And I guess that maybe that's nothing. Let's talk about that. These These young people you're working with, digital is one thing. But that physical, tangible, I can pick up the cards and hold them in my hands and I can shuffle them and I can roll the dice. Do you have any interesting stories or anecdotes where people are kind of like really gravitating towards that physical medium? Like they're enjoying that maybe even more so than the digital stuff?
1: I think it's just uh, at the very least, it's because the barrier is so low to enter uh, with board game design that um, you just, you know, I don't know. You just need to be creative. That's that's the entire, you know. Uh, a, a skill set that you need to, to at least start. I'm not saying to be good at it, but to be, to start as opposed to video games of any kind, like there's so much you have to know. And that, and that's why the very, one of the very first course they take is my course on board game design, because we can do it. We, you know what we, by the end of this course, like you guys are game designers. Now you made a game like you're game designers. And now let's go uh, continue on your journey. And now you're going to become video game designers as well. Um, yeah. So I think no
0: special software, no special coding you yeah. had to learn.
1: Yeah. So I think there's, uh, there's that aspect. Um, um, and what, the thing that pleases me the most is when uh, I connect with uh, students when they're finishing their, their entire year at Vancouver Film School, and it's an intensive year. Um, and I, from what I hear, it's one of the highest rated video game design programs uh, in North America or the world, I'm not sure. Uh, but anyways, uh, the thing that pleases me the most is when I see their final product and they chose to make a board game video game like a video game that's, that has, you know, like it could be a board game. I'm like, well, that's, oh, that's great. That's really cool.
0: That's their subtle way of saying, Jay, you're my favorite teacher. Or he here's actually the best
1: thing that ever happened was one student was so inspired and motivated by my class. He actually, uh, I think he's, I think he still graduated or whatever from the program, but he went on to work for a board game company. Like he wanted to do more. Board, and so he now works for a board game company in Europe. And it's like, that. he's just, yeah, that's his, he's so excited about board games and the life that, uh, not the necessarily life, but just the living around board, like so many gets, you know, that feeling you had when you first experienced these kind of modern board games and you're like, what is this world? Like, what is going on? These are awesome. Like this is, it's just such an exciting feeling if you're that kind of person and you just and gobble up and buy a whole bunch of board games because everything's awesome that's that's just such a great feeling
0: yeah man that's awesome uh, it also has given me the idea like i've met so many young people when i was teaching or just in general just you know church youth group things like that and you say hey what do you want to do when you grow up you know the natural question and a lot of them say oh i want to make video games well you know my response should probably be well have you designed a board game because like if they're if they're 13 odds are they're not diving into unity or like uh unreal engine or like whatever these things that you're going to have to figure out, but they probably have no cards and some dice at home, you know? And so encouraging young people, even if they do want to get into the digital to start in, to start in the physical and like, what does that look like? And how can I support that? Right. And, um, no, that's, that's cool. That's giving me some ideas. Cause I've, I can't tell you how many young people I've met who, who love Fortnite. They love League of Legends. They love these video games that they're diving into. And they're like, Oh, I want to make that kind of the same thing you were just talking about. Like you discover something that opens up a passion in you. You're like, Oh, I want to be part of this in some way. I I want to create this. And then encouraging them down that ro- road through the physical medium first to say, Oh, yeah. well, here's a way you can get your feet wet and start understanding mechanisms. And right like, now,
1: it's right now.
0: Exactly. He's like, you don't have to wait. You don't have to spend six months doing some online course to learn X, Y, or Z. It's like, do you have a pen and a, and a piece of paper <laughs> and all of a sudden we can start making something, you uh, know, and that's something going back to your, uh, Feel faster game design course. If I recall correctly, you, you help people first design a roll and write. Is that right? Yeah. That's
1: a, that's a, Yeah. So, uh, it's, we call it the intro to game design. So it's not like, here's everything you need to know about game design. I, I, I like a certain amount of handholding in my, and what everything I do from teaching perspective I want, because it's, it's just too, i constraints i find is the the mother of invention where uh, when you just like here do anything it's like I, I don't i don't i don't know what to do it's too much I, so let's kind of narrow it and you can only do this you can only use 10 components and in this one and this it's like you have to make a roll and write and so we learn about roll and rights that way i don't have to teach all the different mechanics and all the different concepts of moving and all these different things we don't have to talk about that yet because it's just intros we just have to focus on this and it keeps it a nice shorter more contained uh, uh course and, uh, they walk away with, a um, a, a rolling rate plus, a uh, you know, I think it's spend time with me and I'll, I'll review it with them to, you know, give them feedback and tips and stuff like that. So it's pretty, pretty awesome.
0: Yeah. It's a great way to do it because the concepts, like the core concepts of designing any game are basically the same design prototype playtesting, like no matter what you're doing, twilight Imperium or a button shy 18 card game, like it's all the same concept. Something but yeah, Something
1: about your shirt is, is really,
0: yeah. Easily playtest <laughs> repeat, man. Yeah. Um, but that's it. you know. And so, yeah, I like that idea of saying, okay, we're going to constrain all the way down to this very simple medium of just a roll and write. You just need two or three dice and a piece of paper, and we're going to come up with some ideas, because the concepts you're going to learn in this process will be the exact same concepts you use no matter what you do, whether you have 14 mechanisms all working together to create this five-hour experience, or... Half a mechanism creating a Timmin experience. Like either way, same concepts. So that makes makes a lot of sense.
1: And what, what, I was able to do, what I was able to do for that one is I was able to interview ten high profile game designers about all the different things I teach during that class. And so each lesson has a nice little video afterwards of these prolific designers uh, giving their opinions and, and about the the things I just taught. So that's a nice uh, uh, addendum to each video, which is which is really cool.
0: Yeah, that's a great way to do it what are some other things or what are anything else you want to bring up that you teach in your classes that would, you know, apply here as far as, you know, someone listening to this, trying to figure out, okay, how do I, I've got my nephew and I'd really love to spend more time with him and I would teach him some of these things. Anything else you would say to that person?
1: Uh, as far as the framework goes, like once you start talking like nephew and they're talking like younger, uh, it's even more handholdy. So if you're talking that, but as far as the class goes, uh, and maybe you're a bit older, um, I mean, I I go through all the different tools, like understanding what feedback loops are and how to use them, and um, understanding what um, uh, uh, you know rewards. How to uh, all the different from from uh, variable rewards to to fixed uh, rate rewards, and when to use them. If you're trying to train somebody on on a behavior, what's better, variable or fixed? And if you're trying to motivate somebody, what's better, variable or fixed? And so we we go through all these different, and it just. We just kind of introduce these concepts so that you, uh, hopefully, when you're designing your game, whether it's a board or video game, those things are like, oh yeah, here we should be using a fixed thing, or oh hey, here is where we should be using input randomness, or here, like it's just all these tools that you have to have as a game designer. So it's kind of introducing them to all the language of of of, of, of game designers um, and getting into the types of decisions we talk about. we, We go through some kind of we call them bad decisions even though there's uh, exceptions when they are good to be used but we talk about obviously meaningless decisions uh, or or no no information decisions where you have no information to make a decision or obvious decisions we talk about these types of decisions and, and when they're good to be used but generally you don't want too many of those in your game uh, if, if any and then we talk about okay well let's talk about the good types of decisions we go into that and again i think yeah i think that's the, the key is introducing them to concepts and i try to introduce them in a way where we'll play a little game, I'll be like, uh, I'll say, okay, so, uh, Gabe, you have to choose a hand, left or right? Uh, right. My right hand? Uh, there's yep. nothing in it. Uh, so oh. Yeah, so it's too bad. Uh, so you yeah, don't want a million was- dollars. If you chose this one, you would have got this coin, you would have got a million <laughs> dollars. That's like a no information decision. Right. And we talked about how how did that feel like when you made that decision, you know, like it's like, I don't know, I just it was a guess. Yeah, it was a guess. Did that feel good or bad? Do you want a game full of that? All this kind of stuff. And then we'll even play a game where it's just about no information and and it's just flipping over cards until you get your colors to show up. And it's like, yeah, it's kind of like the game's preset. You're not really making any good decisions, even though there's emotion to it and excitement when you flip up your color, like, oh yeah, I got one. Like it's excitement. So there's a value in it. Uh, but there's no decision, so uh, we they say, "Well, how would you fix that?" Um, or I'll say uh, to the class, "I'm like, okay, this is called the pick a chair game. Uh, so, Gabe, do you want to sit continue sitting in your chair? Or do you want to sit in my chair?"
0: I'm gonna I'm gonna stay in mine.
1: Say, "Hey, that's glad you picked that because uh, now we get to continue with the class." That was the answer that continued the class. Whew! And then I'll ask another student, "Which one chair do you want?" And invariably they'll say, oh, "I'll take your class." I'm like, oh, "I'm glad you chose that because now we get to continue with the class." Whew! And so it's kind of like one of the telltale games, if you ever played those, where the first time you played, it felt like you had a decision and it had an impact. And then you wait, wait a second, that decision actually didn't have any impact at all. It was meaningless. So that's, we go through these exercises and we try to, and it just kind of opens your eyes to the, all these different things. And I, I'm a very hands-on activity, interactive way of teaching things. So that's how we do it.
0: Yeah. But I love that because it seems like it'd be a lot more memorable than just having a slide on a screen like no no we're going to actively do this and create that emotion we're going to create the emotion in you which you know is hopefully going to help you learn it and and remember it. that makes a lot of sense especially with kids i think that that works maybe even more so with a young person yeah yeah yeah, getting that feel bad moment of like was this fun no okay well what did we, what did we learn? It's <laughs> really, really
1: simple dice rolling game and you have to assign numbers and you push your luck. Do you want to keep going? Yes or no. And then you count up how many you did and the next person rolls. And it's a very simple game. We play it once and it's, there's no, there's no value in playing it. But then I say, what if we said the person who has the highest score at the end of every round, they get this little trophy and they can use it to plus or minus one to their die roll once that per, uh, per round. And so then how do play it again? But think about how that changes how you play. How does that motivate you differently? And it's it, it, um, so that's a positive feedback loop where the rich get richer. And then we play it again a third time and say, now the loser, the person with the lowest score, gets this trophy. And at the end, like, which one did you prefer? And there's no right answer because some people love the the, the the pressure of wanting to be first and getting the trophy and having that positive feedback loop. There's a, in such a short game that like you wouldn't want that in a very long game, but in a very short game, that was a fun experience. But uh, they understand that way they understand this whole catch up mechanism and what a negative feedback loop actually does.
0: This is awesome. Let's switch gears and talk about this really cool game design product that you have, which is like a book and a game. And it's like all these things in one. So first of all, tell people, hey, there it is. It looks good for anybody watching on YouTube. Uh, tell people what it is, kind of how it came about. And then let's dive into like why it does such a cool job teaching game design.
1: Yeah. So it's called Design Your Destiny Running Out of Time. And it's brought to you by the my other brand, the Fail Faster brand, which we've been talking about. And um, it's a story. So you, it's it's a full-on story. And I'm not talking like a paragraph, and then you start. It's like a multi-page, like on its own. If you just took out the story, it would sit on a on a young adult um, bookshelf. That's how big the story is, kind of thing.
0: Is it like a graphic novel type story? No, it's a story. It's a
1: full-on written, okay, page text-based text-based story. And then every chapter, there'll be a nice full-page image uh, by Alan Orr, who's got this really wacky art. If you've seen the art for this thing, which is wonderful. And um, every couple chapters you flip the page and there's a game that you play right in the book. And so the the box will come with components that you can use to play these games. And they start off very straightforward and simple. So so simple that the first one is is effectively a a snakes and ladders type, you know, clone or what have you where you roll a die, you move. There's a few other things, it's asymmetric. So it's a little bit more complex than uh, snakes and ladders because one player is trying to catch the other player because that's what's happening in the story and so you're playing as a character in the story running away from this guard and um uh at the end of it you turn the page and all of a sudden there's a hey there's like not a book and not a game and it's like hey that game was broken in some way what what the heck what, what was wrong with this game did you list all the decisions you made during this game and there's a spot for them to list all the decisions and then below that it's funny when i've taught this out to other kids because i've done this for homeschool kids and uh they start saying how many decisions you made and they're like oh lots that's how the first Mm -hmm. answer lots of decisions okay and i keep asking like what were decisions like how how many or what what were they and eventually one kid usually eventually was like uh there were were no decisions i'm like yeah (laughs) that's right you made zero decisions in this entire game and that really comes as a shock to some kids where they're like because that 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 implies that's not right if you made no decisions." And, we, and the book walks you through this. It's like, like would it be more fun if you had decisions? And what kind of decision could we make? And we actually talk about some of these bad types of decisions, like obvious and meaningless and no information decisions. And to say, well, let's try to make some decisions. And that's the goal. You're given these tasks. How can we add a decision? And it isn't just like, go. How do you have a decision? Go. It's like, let's look at the things we can change. And we list all the things. We could change what the dice does when you roll it. We could change the number of dice you roll. We could change... The stuff on the on the board, like you actually go back one space. Like, write stuff on the board. If we wanted to, we could change uh, how you move. Maybe it's not based on dice. Like, so we go through all those things, and we and then I I don't give you the answers. I tell you, well, what what would that do? Try it, and we encourage you to try. Like, what do you want to try? And then even if that's still too much, I give you for the first game a sample. Why don't you try this? If you're if it's still overwhelming, don't know. Try this. Try rolling two dice, and you have to choose one to do this, one to do that, and see what that does. And then there's comes even like a little playtest form. So you write up your little playtest form and you can play by yourself as the two characters or ideally you're playing with two different uh, uh, people, another person, your, your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister, or somebody else, a friend to play with you in these games. And, uh, and it gives you this uh, five or six or seven different things, these different tasks you could do at the end of each chapter of like, okay, can we make this game more fair? Can we make it more interesting for both players? Can we, uh, all these different tasks, as you earn them, you actually unlock these actual stickers that come in the back of the book and you put them in the back page of the book and uh, effectively what you're doing is you're fixing the time machine for the, the kids in the story. They, it's a time travel story. They got thrust into the future and the time machine broke. That it's Their time machine is in the shape of a book and, um, and so it, it broke, but you are actually actively taking a role in the story by helping them fix it and they comment on that a few times in the story like oh it doesn't look as broken as it used to be but it's still broken and so you're actively fixing the book for them and once you fix the entire thing all 25 stickers that's you unlock the last chapter it'll be sealed and you have to uh uh, unlock it so i've already seen some influencers who've talked about this already you'll see this on the kickstarter campaign in their videos about how how the just this gamification of the stickers really motivated some of the kids to be like i i need to earn more stickers because i want to unlock that last chapter even though it's just sealed and you can open it if you wanted to but that you know that uh, uh pride in, in in earning it is awesome and just a, a wonderful thing so that's that's kind of it in a nutshell we designed this uh with i designed it with blaze sewell he actually came to me with a high a high level concept of just a book that had um uh, games in it and just a general concept like that. And I, I wanted to, I said, well, it doesn't fit with off-the-page games, my other company, because that's a comic, we base all our games on comic books and like fail faster is about game design. So if we could do that, but then add game design teaching to it. So it was kind of an idea of his. And then I married, I pushed my game design teachings into it. And we're like, yeah, that sounds cool, actually. And so we've been working on it for about a year and a half now. And now it's uh, now it's out. It's on Kickstarter. We're, we're excited to see what people think of it. So far, the reaction to the concept has been like, that's cool. That's neat. And uh, any parent that's tried it so far has been pretty pretty excited and happy about it.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. It sounds like such a cool way to not only teach game design, but also just connect and have fun with your kids. You know, like all, all these things intersecting at the same time. And, and to your point, kids love stickers. I don't know what it is. It's weird psychological thing i, I want to see like a, a study on like what is it about stickers that draws children towards them i don't know my kids are the same way they have thousands they just have stickers just everywhere and they just love these things and so i can see how that's a nice uh, a nice carrot on the end of that stick to get you know a kid to finish i think how long does the the whole game kit i don't yeah what do, you, what do you call this thing how long is, well, what do you call it and what, how long does it take to finish
1: it's a good question. I I've, I struggle with what to call it when I say game box product thing. Like, I, it's a boxed product. Yeah, it's like an activity. It's an activity box, I guess. It's a, a book and box in all in one. Um, and it it's hard to say how, how long it takes because. Some kids will spend a lot longer on one game because they're really jiving with it and they want to try it again. Oh, and they want to try it again and tweak this and see how that fits. So it could, you know, uh, uh, you could last like a week of of, of playing on this this whole thing or or longer depending on how, you know, how much time per day you want to spend with it. Um, But one of the cool things that we're doing with this is we're actually, it's coming with an educator version as well. So the educator version is not going to have the uh, text boxes in the book at all. It'll be a separate book and it'll have a workbook. So it'll say fill out section B3 in the workbook and you go to B3 and you can then still interact with a book, but on a separate PDF workbook that you download so that this is reusable in a school or a library or a camp or a club or whatnot. Um, and, and then to top it all off, we're even offering uh, if people for a pledge level, it's an add-on, you can uh, donate a copy. Uh, to your local library, school, or club, and then we're going to ask you, if you're going to donate a copy, then go tell a local library club to come to our site and click, uh, I want my free copy, and they'll go on a list. And then, because uh, I know how hard it is for libraries and and schools specifically, uh, they can't really do Kickstarters uh, because of the red tape that's involved with that, or, or they're just not allowed. Uh, so this is a way for them to still participate and get a free copy if there's someone local that wants to donate it.
0: Yeah, that's awesome, and that's to your point. Something I ran into with my board game design starter kit: I had so many teachers they were like, "I have to go through 17 different loops you know, hoops to to get anything," and there's so much red tape and, and all that. And so, yeah, making it as easy as possible. And I love that you made an educator version. You know, if someone's listening to this and they're thinking, "Ah, you know, it's just not my thing," or I don't have access, like I I only hang around with with gamers and nobody like I don't have kids, I don't have nieces and nephews. Well, you probably have a local library. You probably have a, a community around you that would really benefit from something like this. And so if, even if you're not the one doing the thing and teaching and playing the game and, and all that, well, you can be the one supporting and you can offer up help to, to someone else and at least just making people aware of this. And and I'm, I'm excited, man. I, I told you earlier, we were, we were chatting about this. Um, I'm really excited for the post. Campaign stuff. The hopefully getting this into Barnes and Noble or getting this into you know homeschool groups and things like that because I think that's that's where a lot of people are going to hopefully find it and, and really engage with it. You know, the Kickstarter market is a very interesting group of people that you know this this product is not a hundred dollar miniatures experience of fifty hours of content and all this kind of stuff. But we are having so,
1: a deluxe version so that you know, it it is and all the stretch goals are only for the deluxe unit because I need to keep that retail unit, um, as, as uh, low price as possible to keep it. I want to keep it at $30 us, uh, to keep, that's the price point of activity books. If you go want to buy like, Hey, learn how to crochet and it comes with crochet dents and yarn and stuff like that's a $30 box. So I want to keep it at that price point. Um, for that reason. So, uh, but there's gonna be tons of, tons of stretch goals. It's gonna be very much well worth your value if, if as far as the amount of content you get. But the, the way we're doing stretch goals is uh, you get to decide on how the stretch goals are unlocked. So there's this really weird interactive thing that we have these progress bars that are going up as we, the campaign goes, as we hit um, uh, milestones, we unlock these gears, you'll see it on our campaign page. And as we earn gears, every, you can go on our, our campaign page and there's gonna be a list of stretch goals that are available, you can vote on the on the on the strict goals you want but just by commenting in the comment section oh I, I want this and you can vote every single day we're gonna say you can vote up to three things every single day and we're gonna tally them all up and at the end of every third day the the first night we're gonna do it and then after that every third day uh we're gonna uh, unlock whatever whatever we can, whatever is the highest voted thing that we can afford we're gonna unlock those so i don't even know what the deluxe looks like yet
0: oh nice but i love that you're gamifying the campaign because i think that's a really cool way to do it especially in this for this product, right? It's something I wish I had done a little more of with the find the fun book campaign I recently did is finding ways to gamify the project and get people commenting and get people voting on things. Uh, I think that's a really smart way to do it. And and you've done this kind of thing before in some of your campaigns. I think it worked really well and I'm excited to see how you've kind of re-implemented some, some things and learned and, and, and you're doing things a little differently too. Cause I think that's even if, even if you're listening to this episode and you have no interest in anything we're talking about, at least go check out, the campaign to see how Jay is doing stretch goals. Cause I think there are some interesting things to learn that could apply to a lot of different games, you know, not game design, like they could apply to that hundred dollar miniatures based game potentially. And so some cool things going on there, but Jay, this has been awesome. Like we're saying it's on Kickstarter right now. I'm looking forward to it. I can't wait to get my own deluxe copy and, and go through it with my, my kids. I think something that they're going to enjoy and I'm going to enjoy it as well. Uh, anything else, any, as far as like, where can people find you any other games you want to shout out or anything like that?
1: Yeah, it's mostly failfaster.ca. Um, that's where you find all the information about uh, me and my programs. And uh, uh, currently when you go there, it's mostly about the uh, online game design program that's available. Uh, so we're working on in the background on our websites to uh, make sure we talk about the design your destiny as well as, uh, have a, a link to this, this site as well. Uh, so yeah, failfaster.ca and I'll, I'm available on all the socials. Um, but when I first started doing it, I think my uh, Facebook is Failfaster Journal, which is like now in, in hindsight, a little bit too precise because it's now not just a journal, but that's what the right. Facebook is. So uh, I think Fail J is my uh, Twitter handle.
0: Nice. Okay, thank you so much for being here and good luck with the campaign. Hope it does really well.
1: Thanks, Gabe. Have a good one.